This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast Candidate Series. I am your host, Stephen Cox. Hello. This week, my guest is Jen Goulet. She is running for state representative in Washington's 9th Legislative District in Position 1. This is a district in southeastern Washington that includes Pullman and Pasco, and she joins us now to talk about her candidacy. Jen Goulet, welcome. Hello. So, you know, I want to start by talking about you and your your family's roots there. Your family's roots in southeastern Washington go back to the 1800s. So you are, does that make you the fourth generation there? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I am the fourth generation, and one of my daughters is the fifth generation. Oh, wow. um, <laughs> I have, uh, on my mother's side of the family, they came over from Nebraska and settled in nearby Waitsburg and Dayton and Walla Walla. Um, there were farmers and um, a barber. Um, and then my dad's family came over um, also, um, I'm not really sure, but a really long time ago hmm. in the um, early 1900s. Like my grandmother was born in Pasco in 1918. Um, and I think that um, it was her parents that came here um, at the turn of the century. So, yeah, we go way back. Yeah, so you know this area very intimately. Um, so it makes a lot of sense that you would want to to serve the area. And so, yeah, I'm curious what made you want to do that ultimately. Um, professionally, you've worked as an editor and as a technical writer. Uh, you're also on the board of Planned Parenthood for Greater Washington. You were the former chair of the Franklin County Democratic Central Committee. And you did first run for this office in 2016. But I'm, I am curious, what point did you decide that you wanted to run for office? Was there a specific time or an incident? There was. I've been asked, uh, you know, a few times over the years, people would say, yeah, you should run for office. And I would, you know, laugh them off and say, yeah, right. That's, that's never going to happen. But in early 2016, uh, shortly after I'd become a board member at Planned Parenthood, something happened. And that was, uh, there was a group of teenagers that were in Olympia lobbying on behalf of Planned Parenthood. And I'd actually taken my youngest uh, daughter, who was 11 years old, to Olympia to lobby for Planned Parenthood. It's a great experience. You learn how the legislature works. And these teenagers were in uh, my opponent's uh, office lobbying, and that was Mary Dye. And she asked the teenagers whether or not they were virgins and implied that one of them was not and told them that every time they have sex with someone new, they lose a piece of their soul. Wow. And that actually made national news. And when that information got back to me, as as a woman, as a mother of two teenage daughters, and as a Planned Parenthood board member, I was, I was just horrified. And I remember thinking, someone needs to run against this lady, because in eastern Washington, it's almost always two Republicans running against each other. Yeah. And and then I remembered, you know, people have said, you should run for office, and you are somebody. So why not you? Um, and so I did. I ran against her then. I'm running against her now. I hope this is going to be the last time because I want to I want to take her out. <laughs> well, well, we'll talk about her a little bit more in detail in a second because I want to get some of your thoughts on her and some of the ways, some of the other ways that she's come up short for constituents in your district. But 
let's just shift over and talk briefly about some of your platforms as you lay them out on your website. Um, and I want to start with your thoughts on taxes uh, because, of course, government programs need money to fund them. Um, and I'll just quote something that you said on your website. You say, quote, you will work to ensure a more fair tax system so that small business owners and individuals do not bear the burden of funding vital state services and programs while giant corporations and the wealthy escape responsibility. So that sounds good to most progressives' ears. Uh, We do not have a state income tax here. Uh, So how do you envision a fairer tax system? Yeah. First of all, I want to say that I think that sounds good to um, not just progressive ears, but to even, um, you know, more conservative ears. If you're a small business owner, regardless of your political leaning, there um, there is a growing sense of discontent with the fact that the system is rigged in favor of big business, of those with power and wealth. And small business owners, even Republicans, know that there is uh, an unfair burden placed on them. Um, They are unfairly burdened with the business and occupation tax, which that could take a whole half hour to go into that on another podcast episode. But there's a lot of like subsidies and tax breaks that because of powerful um, lobbyists that the the big corporations are able to uh, afford that has the the tax system unfairly rigged against the rest of us. So I want to go after that uh, that unfair balance and try to. Were you talking closing loopholes for larger corporations, things like that? Yes. Yes, I want to make sure that they're paying their fair share of taxes so that small businesses have a fair shake at being successful. Because the fact of the matter is that the vast majority of businesses in Washington state are smaller businesses, and they're very important to our economy. And it's actually, I think, not healthy to over-rely on a few small businesses. They basically hold our, our economy hostage and um, when you talk about the, a few businesses, mm-hmm. you're talking, of course, about like Boeing, Amazon, uh, the, the, the big yes. hitters, Microsoft, corporations yes. like them. Yes. And <clears throat> it's like we're constantly in a state of playing chicken, um, the state and, and these big corporations like Amazon and Boeing, um, where they're constantly saying, you will concede to us in this or that or we will we will leave. And um, that, that's not healthy to become so over-reliant on one particular uh, corporation and the jobs that they provide. Um, I think that we need to diversify. And the way to do that is to make sure that um, we are supporting more small businesses. And that is what makes for a very healthy, thriving economy. Well, so then let's talk about uh, the economic development plank uh, in your platform because I think they're intertwined. You say on your website that uh, you want to bring family wage jobs to your district uh, and you specifically refer to jobs in clean energy and tech. Uh, And you also say that you want to make sure that you don't lose the jobs that you have. And so let's start with the jobs that you have there. By that, I assume that you mean small businesses. But what are the major sources of employment in the ninth legislative district? And, and how do you work to keep those jobs? Um, obviously, in the ninth legislative district, it is a very rural area in a, a large swath 
of the ninth in between the two more major urban populations. Um, so we have a lot of uh, you know, food processing plants. We have um, you know, a lot of wheat farm, farms and other uh, agricultural products, which are a huge part of Washington State's economy. I don't think that, um, for example, the West Side truly appreciates just how much um, West or East Side agriculture uh, contributes to our uh, economy. Um, but then we also have uh, Pasco and Pullman are the two major uh, more urban parts of the Ninth Legislative District. And in Pullman, we have Washington State University. So we have a, a, a lot of education jobs there, obviously. Sure. Um, there is a desire that's been expressed to me uh, throughout the district to um, have kind of a science corridor is the word that has been used um, to bring more you know, research and development into uh, the area between like Clarkston and uh, Pullman. Um, and I know that in uh, Pasco and in the Tri-Cities in general, um, that there's been a big push to bring more tech jobs into the area. We already have a, a growing tech industry here. A lot of young professionals who have come uh, from outside the area, but also, you know, in the area who are you know, very driven uh, individuals are, are trying to build that community here. And uh, I think that that's very important, especially because in the Tri-Cities, a lot of our jobs have been um, from the Pacific Northwest National Labs and the Hanford um, site where uh, Hanford in particular, eventually that environmental cleanup work will be done yeah. and those jobs will, will go away. And so we have to think to the future, what are we going to do as we move forward? And so there are you know, brilliant young people that are already thinking, all right, how are we going to prepare for what's going to happen in 20, 30, you know, 40 years from now to keep this area, um, you know, the vital community or the thriving community that it is now? And so one of the things that you mentioned transitioning into uh, our green energy jobs, what are some of the opportunities for green energy uh, in southeastern Washington? Yeah, um, actually, we are about to uh, be home to one of the largest solar farms in the country in Lind, Washington, tiny little Lind, Washington. And that's going to be a big provider of jobs and green energy. We're very excited about that. Well, that is exciting. And uh, yeah, those of us on the wet side of the mountains forget that you on the dry side get an awful lot of sunshine. So that uh, <laughs> sounds like a good use of it. Um, I also want to talk about infrastructure because that's something else that you stress. Um, talk a little bit about the infrastructure needs of your district. You say a lot of it is crumbling. Um, what are they? And then how do you remedy those needs? Yes. Um, well, between Pasco and Pullman, for example, we have Route 26, which is one of the most dangerous and deadly highways in the state um, that has a lot of student traffic going from WSU um, to you know wherever the students live. And that is one that needs to be basically made a more safe road. What, why is it unsafe? Well, for one, it is, it is uh, for the vast majority of it, uh, you know, a two-lane highway. Um, and so there's a lot of people that are passing on uh, on curves and on hills, and um, also there is there's no cell service out there. 
um, when I'm traveling between, um, you know, towns, um, for the majority of my trip, there's no cell service at all. So if something does happen to you out there, um, you probably can't call for help. Um, and so sometimes you might have been able to survive an accident, but maybe not because you weren't able to get help in time. And of course, the, those roads are heavily traveled by uh, agricultural vehicles um, getting the product to market. And so that does take a toll on those roads. And it's very important to maintain them so that we're getting that product where it needs to go. Well, something then that is related to infrastructure would be broadband. And one of the planks in your platform is bringing broadband to rural communities. Um, this is, of course, important for a number of reasons, uh, I think, in order to be competitive and even just simply informed, having broadband is enormously important. Uh, talk about how you would do that. Uh, it's not a cheap prospect, is it? No, it's not. And I will first of all say that there is already an effort underway to bring rural broadband into the ninth legislative district and other parts of the state that are rural. Um, but it's a very, uh, we'll call it light bill right now that isn't uh, very detailed in how it's actually going to be implemented. And what I want to do is make sure that it that it does actually happen and that it is going to bring affordable broadband into the rural areas and not be dominated by any one company that makes it, that it prices people out. Uh, there was federal uh, federal program available that kept it affordable for uh, lower income people, but the federal funds available got slashed by like 75% this year. And so, um, and that was called, I think, the Lifeline Program. Um, and so it's going to be more important than ever to make sure that, that prices are kept within reach because a lot of people in those rural districts are you know, lower income. And the way to get things like cell towers, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, broadband out there is uh, public-private partnerships uh, because obviously you know, corporate uh, companies don't necessarily have the incentive to lay the, the lines out there uh, on their own to serve so few customers. So it requires uh, working together with uh, the government to, to get that infrastructure put out there. Um, and so I, it's very important to me to make sure that it does happen, that it's affordable. And it's so important for people because that is how um, you make sure that uh, you can you can lift people out of poverty. It is a way that people can... Uh, um, go and get an online education, for example, which in a rural community where you may not have a college anywhere near you is very important. It's how you can have a small online business. And one thing that people don't really think about um, is that it is the way to access telemedicine, which is huge moving into the future. Yeah. Um, it's already really difficult to get medical care when you're in a rural community. Um, and telemedicine would make that burden so much better if you don't need to actually see a doctor in person for some, you know, refill or some condition where a doctor can diagnose you just by having a conversation. Um, telemedicine is such a big um, help for people, and so they, they can't do that without broadband access. So it's so important to make people's lives better.
Yeah, yeah. As I said, I mean, there are myriad reasons to bring uh, broadband access to to rural communities, and you're laying out some great ones. Um, you know, I want to come back to something you were saying earlier about when you were driving the the roads between Pasco and Pullman, and your site says that your campaign is reaching more voters than any other in recent history. And I would imagine one of the reasons is the mileage that you're, <laughs> you cite on your website, 8,000 miles, it says that you've logged so far uh, as you have been campaigning. That's a lot. Oh, and actually that is out of date. Um, first of all, I will say that the ninth Legislative District is the second largest in the state. It's actually bigger than the state of Connecticut. And from one end of the district to the other is about a three-hour drive. Wow. Um, so um, I'll tell you, I bought a car um, one year ago this month, and I started my campaign last November. So um, I just passed the 24,000-mile mark, and um, <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you how many of those have been done since November, but I'll tell you the vast majority of that has been done since November, so probably something like 20,000 miles at this point. Wow. Well, it's really impressive. <laughs> and well, and I should also point out that you have raised $30,000 in non-corporate donations. I'll just ask you flat out, how have you done that? Uh, a lot of phone calls and um, and fundraisers and just just get out there and talking to people. Um, it's it's a lot of a lot of work to just talk to actual human beings instead of uh, you know reaching out to corporate donors like my opponent does. Well, you're transitioning <laughs> into what my next question was going to be, and I said we'd get back to her, and we are. Let's do talk about Mary Dye. Um, you mentioned her meeting with some students in Olympia where she talked about their their sexuality, uh, which did, in fact, make national news. But what are some of the other ways that she has come up short for constituents in your district, in your mind? Um, well, she she's actually really unpopular, even among Republicans. She votes so far to the right, she often votes against her own party. Um, and she's just really ignorant of science. I mean, there's just no gentle way to put that. On my website, we have a, a section called Merry Moments. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it, you know, you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll be both at the same time. Um, <laughs> one that's truly cringeworthy is a speech she gave uh, in the legislature on carbon. And um, she's basically making a case for uh, carbon emissions being really good for humanity, being good for business, good for the economy. Um, she calls carbon the mother gas. And um, and it, it's just a stunning display of, uh, of a lack of understanding of science. Um, it, it's just I, I would really encourage people to go out there to my website and watch the video. Um, I mean, really, you'll you'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll 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 cringe. It's, it's uh, yeah. worth watching. Probably most, <laughs> you'll probably mostly do some crying. Um, well, you know, you say that she doesn't always vote with her own party. And I guess my question would be, do you feel that she is politically to the right of most Washington Republicans? Yes. In, in a lot of ways, I think that she is. Um, one example I'll give is the breakfast after the bell. Um, that did overwhelmingly pass. 
Um, and that was and a program actually that was put forth by uh, State Senator Lisa Wellman, and that was to provide meals to students uh, before class, uh, students who may correct. not have food at home. Right. Correct. Which, you know, even Republicans understand that, you know, kids need food. It's, it's what powers our brains um, in order to be able to, to learn to focus in school. And so even Republicans voted overwhelmingly with Democrats to get that passed. And she voted against it, which just blows my mind. She's a wheat farmer. She should be all about feeding the population. Mm. And yet she voted against that. Um, it just really uh, left left a lot of people scratching their heads. Yeah. Well, you know, Mary Dye may be voting to the right of her party, but uh, the 9th Legislative District is, uh, I think, solidly Republican would be one way to put it, uh, letting people know that it has been held by Republicans for the last 80 years uh, kind of puts it into historical context. And so it must be challenging running as a Democrat there. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, it, it definitely is. If for no other reason than it's trying to convince people that I have a chance, um, even to try to convince Democrats that I have a chance, uh, because a lot of people have just said, oh, well, it's, it's Republican and there's just nothing we can do about that. Um, and so we have to, to break that mindset. And, and so it's been an uphill battle. Um, But I think that something that's really different between when I ran in 2016 and running now is that people, um, they have hope, especially with what we we see across the country where Democrats are sweeping elections in what have been strong Republican um, districts that people are saying, okay, this really could happen. Um, and, And so... I definitely see that change um, pretty dramatically between now and 2016. People have hope, and it definitely gained me a lot more support, a lot more uh, both donors and volunteers and, and enthusiasm that I didn't have two years ago. Well, it's very exciting to talk about the prospect of that. It's very exciting to talk to you about your campaign, and uh, we want to wish you the best of luck. Jen Goulet, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. And that'll do it for the Washington State Indivisible Podcast Candidate Series. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.